You're listening to a podcast on Catholic Saints. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Welcome to Form Now. I'm Tim Gray, president of the Augustan Institute, and joining me is a special guest and a dear friend, Dr. Sean Innerst, who is a professor here at the Augustan Institute, as well as at St. John Vianney Seminary in Denver. And Sean is also one of the co-founders of the Augustan Institute. He was here at the very beginning of the founding of the Augustan Institute and was one of our pillars. And we're going to talk about St. Joseph of Cupertino. St. Joseph uh, is an interesting Franciscan, and he was a, a simple soul, a holy soul. And I, probably the best thing to do, you know, he, he's right at the beginning of the 17th century. And so maybe we want to place him where he's at as a Franciscan at the beginning of, well, at the story of what's going on with the Franciscan order at that time. Because a lot of people don't know that the Franciscans start, end up having some different groupings and some different yeah, development right. in the Franciscan order. So mm -hmm. you want to talk about? Yeah, uh, the, uh, the Franciscan movement, which was pretty much a solid singular expression under what's generally referred to as the Order of Friars Minor. Um, existed in relative peace <laughs> mm. for about 300 years after Francis. So the uh, Francis died in 1226 and uh, the Franciscan order which he founded obviously uh, begins about the year 1209-1210. Uh, and until about the time of the Reformation actually they really did have a kind of unified expression under that one title, Order of Friars Minor. And uh, it's not until um, certain tensions developed, we'll say, uh, between uh, that group which is referred to as the observants and those which are called conventuals. So the conventuals is the group that uh, St. Joseph Cupertino belongs to. And uh, they were thought to be somewhat lax at the time because they wanted to live in larger groupings. Mm -hmm. And larger groupings uh, tend towards um, more property, um, more property uh, something that looks more like monasticism than the kind of uh, ideal that St. Francis had in mind when he founded the order, which is very small uh, groups of men living in poverty together, you know, hand to mouth, really, and without uh, property. Large convents require, you know, endowments and things like that and uh, cozy relationships with uh, benefactors and that sort of thing. So. Um, there were two movements, really the conventuals, and then later on the group that we call the Capuchins, uh, came to be called the Capuchins, who were um, strong observants of the original rule of St. Francis. And the Capuchins and uh, the conventuals actually come to be um, recognized as separate religious orders, although under the title of Friars Minor um, about this time. Uh, a little earlier, 16th century. By the time we get to St. Joseph in the 17th century, these are stable divisions in the, in, the, in the Franciscan family, yeah. So the ones who are trying to be observant, they're, they're trying to really, they probably see themselves as more radically going back to Francis's charism. That's right. What he really wanted. That's right. And smaller groups, probably more itinerant. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, several elements which were common to the original primitive Franciscan ideal. Uh, as we just mentioned, smaller uh, groupings. Um, the, the Capuchins, when they break away, uh, it's part of their 
their rule that they want to have eight to 12 uh, friars in each friary, no more. Um, they want to have hermitages because part of the Franciscan ideal was uh, being able to get away for extended periods of prayer. Uh, once again, conventual life um, uh, tends to be uh, less aromatical as the term goes, right? Uh, uh, less, um, you know, less the spirit and charism of, of the hermit. So it's, a, it's um, uh, the Capuchins, even in their habit, actually, the, the Capuchins uh, have a habit which is distinct from the OFMs because they don't have this little kappa thing here. They have a, they have a long hood uh, which is attached to the habit, and that's a very important thing. This is supposed to be the original kind of habit that St. Francis wore, mm. and that's a kind of badge or emblem of their desire to return to the original charism of Francis, who famously said that, that the rule he had written should be uh, followed, as he said, sine glossa in the, yeah. in the Latin, without gloss, without apology, without interpretation, simply do what I have suggested must be done as a part of this charism I've, re I've received from God, so. Well now, uh, let's take it back to the, obviously the early 17th century. Mm -hmm. uh, St. Jo Joseph uh, Cupertino, he's, he's born what, 1603? 1603, yeah. And, and uh, very poor family. Yeah. Very simple family mm -hmm. in, in Italy. Yeah, so actually born, Cupertino's on the, on the heel of the boot. The heel of the boot. Yeah, so it's uh, southeastern. The old um, Naples yeah, region. Yeah, yeah. Right? the kingdom of Naples at the time. And, uh, and he is born in abject poverty. His, uh, his father um, died before he was born and uh, had piled up some debts. <laughs> mm. And so uh, Joseph is actually born in a stable, wow. which is an interesting, that you know, a Christological connection. So yeah. he, like his master, he's born in a stable, wow. and uh, and that points towards his, um, I would say, predilection for uh, for the Franciscan charism, right? Mm -hmm. Because it sort of suggests the 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 trajectory of Franciscan minority, simplicity, poverty, that sort of thing. So well, this I, is a yeah, it's a landmark. <laughs> yeah, when you think about being born in a in a stable. Uh, I think of the nativity sets, and of course, mm -hmm. St. Francis is the one who started that, yep. that whole um, devotion or that, that whole practice of having a nativity set. Yeah, because he's so yeah, yeah, talk about the Christmas crush of, of Francis. I mean, that was really a big part of his spirituality. He was it the was. originator of it. Yes, yes, he, it really was. He's a, um, uh, you know, in, in Franciscanism, they, they refer uh, to the crib and the cross, mm. right? So. Um, so the, the poverty of Bethlehem is part of the, you could say, moral imagination of Franciscanism, the idea that, um, that our Lord enters his incarnation in the poverty of, um, you know, the, uh, the, the stable, the, you know, and it's, it's uh, really sensory, you know, the idea of the sweet smell of the hay, the warmth of the animals, the, um, the simplicity of that domestic, agrarian kind of scene um, is fires the imagination of Francis and and in a certain sense he's always returning there and uh, his that uh, that special celebration of of Christmas with the creche um, he's typically uh, seen garbed as a deacon because uh, Francis was actually a deacon 
and he's seen typically garbed as a deacon in the presentation of the Christmas crash as a kind of um, you know, critical part of the original kerygma or proclamation of the faith is the poverty of our Savior. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's one of the reasons I think why it, it uh, filled his imagination so, so vitally. I love that because, you know, Francis himself coming from a family of wealth and means, mm -hmm. he ends up giving all that away, but he's even more blown away that his Lord and Savior, Jesus, the Son of God, gives up all privileges, titles, and, and uh, luxury to become impoverished for our sake. Mm -hmm. you know, his, by his poverty, we are, we are made rich. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's so stunning that St. Joseph of Cupertino is born in a stable uh, and he's going to become a Franciscan. So, you know, talk, talk about St. Joseph in, in his early years. What, you know, he's, he's a simple lad. Mm -hmm. And I, I think if I remember the story, he, he tries to, to join the Franciscans and kind of gets rebuffed and kind of kicked out uh, of several different groups. Yes, he does. And kind of bounces around. He didn't think he was worthy, <laughs> right? Well, and probably in an earthly sense, he wasn't. You know, mm -hmm. um, he, uh, he had difficulties. He was apparently uh, somewhat inept, uh, incompetent, um, uh, you know. Not educated. Not educated, yeah, obviously coming from poverty. And, and that was the original reason for his rejection uh, by the conventuals, the group he actually ends up uh, spending his life with. Uh, the conventuals originally send him away because he lacks education. Um, he goes and tries with the Capuchins, and uh, the Capuchins send him away because he, he apparently fell into ecstasy too often, which is, which is an odd impediment to religious <laughs> life, you'd think. But, um, but he, he tried to enter, because he didn't have education, as a lay brother, so without the intention of seeking priestly ordination. And, uh, and lay brothers are supposed to get stuff done. You know, wash the dishes and Be clean the practical. floors, and and uh, and if you're <laughs> if you're falling into ecstasy all the time, which was the case with Saint Joseph from a from a very early age, mm -hmm. uh, from from eight apparently he began having these ecstatic mm -hmm. experiences and and actually got the nickname of um, well. Uh, what the Italian means is a gape, right? His, his mouth would just be open <laughs> because he would fall into ecstasy and, and, and lose his sense of what was around him, which only sort of added to his ineptitude yeah, and so his, his poor kid, incapacities. He's, if, yeah. he's, if he's a bit clumsy, not as well educated and sharp, and, yeah. and, uh, and so you're probably worried about his mental acuity, and all of a sudden, every time he prays or reflects, it seems that... Yeah. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's going into these ecstasies. Now, explain for everybody, Sean, a little bit more what this means. When does he go into ecstasy, and what does that what does that mean? Well, these these ecstatic states are common for people in advanced stages of the spiritual life, um, and it, uh, it what it really involves is the uh, God's capturing the powers of the person with whom he is entering into a deeper relationship. So. Um, you know, spiritual theology teaches us that at, at the height of mystical evolution, God captures the intellect, captures the will, uh, and, uh, you know, fascinates the imagination. So God uh, basically makes himself the very center of the attention of the person who uh, falls into the state, and it's happened in the lives of many saints. Um, you know, St. Catherine of Siena would fall 
uh, senseless every time she received Holy Communion, for example. She would lie as though dead <laughs> after, after receiving Holy Communion. Uh, St. Francis had similar things happening to him. He would simply become insensible to external stimuli mm -hmm. um, because he was so entranced by the divine presence and power, and, and that made him appear to be gape-mouthed, right? Just in, incapable of handling uh, ordinary uh, things in life. Um, he ends up um, being kicked out of the Capuchins, as I mentioned, and, uh, and goes back to the conventuals, uh, does so, um, once again, this is sort of full circle in a certain sense, he becomes a stable hand. Hmm. So he's, he's, he goes back and volunteers, please let me work in your stable and at least I can live on the margins of Franciscan life. And uh, so full circle, he returns to the stable from which you know, he originally came. And in that circumstance, uh, the conventual see his humility, his minority, his sanctity, and, uh, and they come to appreciate uh, the quality of his soul. And so he is finally accepted into uh, into the convent and becomes uh, a brother and eventually a priest. And in rather short order, I mean, I, apparently they're, they're impressed enough. He, I think he left the Capuchins in, in uh, 1620 and he's ordained in 1625. So, oh. so they rather quickly recognize uh, that he's been touched by God. And, and this and is a different group. This is the conventional. So but it's it the conventionals, but it's a different group of conventionals than when he first tried to join. No, no well, yes, uh, different. Yeah, he he moved from uh, from convent to convent or monastery to monastery, yeah. friary to friary. As a matter of fact, he was bounced around because of his particular gifts mm -hmm. uh, for quite a number of years, and and actually for uh, almost thirty five years was um, was under close watch. You know. Well, God, it says something about his character that he, he, he keeps getting rejected and rejected, yeah. and yet he perseveres. Mm -hmm. he, he clearly has a deep sense that he's called to be Franciscan. I mean, he doesn't go and try to join the Dominicans or, yeah. you know, he, he doesn't go searching for the Benedictines. I mean, he really just, he really felt called to be Franciscan. Yeah, and, uh, and as I said before, I think uh, it's, it's that sense, that humble sense of who he really is before God. And he had, you know, apart from, uh, you know, the difficulties of, of his clumsiness, ineptitude, you know, uh, lack of social skills, he also had a temper, which, um, which uh, might not uh, be all that surprising given all the stumbling and dropping of things he's doing, right? Um, he probably feels as though he's in a certain sense being thought little of, which is St. Thomas's definition of anger, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's typically uh, fomented by that kind of sense of uh, one's lowliness, right? Mm -hmm. That's often the reason people get angry. And uh, so he had to struggle against that, you know, he, he didn't volunteer for his, uh, for his minority at first, mm -hmm. you know? So it's part of the, the um, you know, the divine project uh, to come to recognize things which are difficulties, um, things which humble us as gifts, really, and I think that's what he did. That's what he did. That's, I, I love the, the idea that God uses our, our very weaknesses to to refine us, to sanctify yeah, us. Exactly. And so, I, what you know, when we think about him, uh, 
going through these different trials of you know rejection, rejection, rejection. And finally, he gets accepted. He, yeah. but I love even then he says, "I'll just be a stable boy." Uh -huh. I mean, he he doesn't say, "I deserve to be a Franciscan." Yeah, no, no, no. And so he he's come to a different level of humility, it seems. At this, yes, th at that yes. entry. And that's exactly, uh, as I mentioned, what seems to be the, the refining experience for him. Uh, he, he finally settles on not being a Franciscan. And mm. that's what makes him hmm. humble enough to be a Franciscan. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful story. It's a really beautiful story. I'm struck when I, we talk about the, his, this, just the, the, the mysticism that he had and, mm -hmm. and these ecstatic experiences. You know, Teresa of Avila talks about how these are gifts from God. One mm -hmm. does not work oneself up to, uh, of course, holiness disposes one, but it, it doesn't, it, they're gifts from God. Yeah. This, this kind of spiritual union with God, it's pure gift. And when you think about just this, this humble, simple boy who is, loses his father before he's born, mm -hmm. uh, he is raised in, in abject poverty, not well educated, yet he has a heart for the story of St. Francis and the story that God became simple and humble Mm -hmm. And this draws him to Christ, and Christ just is just seems incredibly lavish in his gifts because uh, Joseph seems to fulfill what Paul talked about in First Corinthians that God does not choose the wise of the world, or the powerful, or the eloquent, or the great, but what's lowly and despised. Yeah, and he yeah. really seems to be the poster child for that <laughs> <laughs> that passage of Corinthians. Well, yeah, and there are many of those in the Franciscan family just because of its minority. But, uh, uh, you know, and interestingly enough, you know, it's our, our, our Blessed Mother's Magnificat where she speaks of lifting up the lowly. And in the end, that's, that's the peculiar charism of, of St. Joseph of Cupertino. He ends, ends up being lifted up. And his lowliness, in a certain sense, it, well, what we're referring to. I yeah, let's, say. Let's, let's explain this. But I, I, I got it. That was very funny. But. But uh, he, he was known for levitating. He was known for levitating. So and they, they describe that for people. People, <laughs> people aren't used to running into people levitating. What does levitating mean? Uh, once again, uh, levitation is in the spiritual life characteristic of the same dynamic that we were speaking of before, where God cap captures the powers. Well, he doesn't just capture the spiritual powers. Sometimes he captures the whole uh, physicality of a person and will literally lift them up in the air. And this also happened to St. Teresa of Avila. She says in her autobiography, uh, when she recounts her, her experience of levitation, that she was very embarrassed by it and asked God to put her down. <laughs> but, um, but she was overwhelmed by the power, the divine power expressed in, in the very fact of lifting her off the ground. She just, she recognized uh, his God's strength and power um, you know, in the senses, right? She, she realized that she was so fragile and small a creature that, that wow. it is nothing for him to just lift her up. And, uh, and this happened many times uh, in the life of St. Joseph Cupertino, over 70 recorded instances of his being uh, observed to have risen while saying mass or while saying the divine office and things like that. So, wow. or even just at prayer. Yeah, there's a there's a a famous story of his um, rising up uh, above the high altar and and assuming a kneeling position, but in midair, uh, <laughs> right in front of the whole congregation. 
and uh, so it's it's really it's a it's a remarkable gift. I've never seen anyone levitate. I do know people who have seen people levitate, and uh, and they say it's it's very moving. It's awe-inspiring wow. when you meet somebody of that that level of holiness. You can say. Yeah, I love the image that you have from Our Lady from her Magnificat. Yeah, that's right. That God will raise up the lowly. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, and. Uh, there's an interesting dimension to this too. That remember, um, Chesterton says, you know, the 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 angels can fly because they take themselves lightly, right? Mm. And it 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 falls into the same pattern as we were saying, right? That that minority and uh, you know the smallness of Franciscanism, the uh, the surrender to God in the pursuit of sanctity, um, gives one a sort of lightness of being, right? Yeah. Um, um, uh, minority means you don't take yourself too seriously. And, and this is also characteristic of sort of, uh, you might say, the comedic dimension of Franciscanism. You know, Francis uh, liked to be the clown, the, you know, the jongleur, the, the, uh, the person who uh, would perform, you know, in an almost comedic uh, fashion. A fool for Christ is another way of putting that. Which I think, it, I think Francis in, is intentional in, in terms of imitating St. Paul in that, mm -hmm. right? Because Paul talks to the Corinthians, again, who were puffed up with rank and social status and uh -huh. possessions and all those things that people measure themselves against others by. And Paul will talk about being a fool for Christ's sake. Mm -hmm. You know, Paul will talk about, hey, we apostles are made a spectacle. Yeah. You know, you guys are... You Corinthians are esteemed and respectable, but we apostles, we're, we're a spectacle and we're mocked and we're laughed at and um, we're fools for Christ's sake. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think this, this idea, this kind of humility and this you know, kind of becoming or accepting the idea of being a fool for Christ is deeply biblical. Yeah, and, and oh, very, very much so, very much so. And obviously, as we were saying before, that's, that was Francis's idea and his ideal, right? To, to, take, uh, to take the biblical ideal without qualification, without apology, without, uh, you know, without excuse. And, uh, and that's very much present in, in the, the Franciscan thing. Going back to, to Chesterton, uh, he has a beautiful section in his uh, biography of St. Francis, which is very much worth reading. Everybody mm. should read uh, that book. Um, you know, he wrote one on St. Thomas, he wrote one on St. Francis. Ignatius Press publishes them in a single volume, I think. But um, uh, he, he speaks of Francis the, the, the acrobat, hmm. right? And uh, Francis says, uh, sort of standing on his head, and in that posture, he says, um, he sees the earth not on its solid foundations, but suspended from the divine power, right? He's, he, he speaks of Assisi, uh, you know, this very, you've been there, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a very formidable kind of city. The edifices are stone and so ponderous, concrete. right? They're, they're well anchored in the earth. But if you look at them upside down, <laughs> it looks like they're hanging from heaven, you know? And so he, he suggests that that's kind of the Franciscan vision, that, that this vision of minority, of levity, you could even say, right, of... Uh, you know, seeing the world almost humorously because of its frailty and the fact that in, in a very real sense we're suspended in being 
mm. you know, uh, by the divine power and from the divine power and at the divine will. And that's a completely different way of looking at the world than we wow. usually do. Well, I think going back to St. Joseph now, I, 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 and he had a great devotion to the holy name of Jesus, didn't he? Mm -hmm. He did. And, and was it true that, that was enough to send him into levitation? Yeah, okay, so, and that's, that makes, you know, choir and chapel very hard to do. Yeah, that's because right. Because you're going to hear the name of Jesus a lot in your, <laughs> as the congregation's gathering for their, you know, letters of the hours and their prayer time, they're going to, you're going to hear the name of Jesus and the poor guy's going to be floating. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So he had a, he obviously, as is always the case with the saints, he had a very deep uh, love of Our Lady and, of course, firstly, Our Lord. And, uh, and the mention of either uh, could send him into ecstasy and into levitation. Um, also, the other saints, um, Christmas carols, there were all kinds of things that caused him to, to, to rise um, in ecstasy. Um, so it, he, once again, a very humble soul, very beautiful, uh, deeply devout, um, but once again, um, in a certain sense, not fitted for this world, you know, mm. because uh, even in religious life, um, you know, that's going to inspire wonder and awe in some people and suspicion and jealousy in others. Yeah, and distraction. I mean, that's, you oh, know, yeah. if you're trying to pray and someone <laughs> keeps floating up, you know, it's kind of hard to focus on the person. The irony is that, uh, you know, God's kind of, as you've mentioned, taking the, the, the physical, the bodily faculties and, and possessing them, mm -hmm. but that's not happening to everybody else around them. Yeah. And they're, they're getting very distracted yes. um, in their prayer meditations. They watch mm -hmm. that. But what do you think the lesson is? Why, why does the Lord do that extraordinarily, extraordinarily rare and unique thing? What, what is he trying to teach us? I mean, obviously he does it for people like Joseph and mm -hmm. Teresa of Avila out of love for them. But what, what is it for all of us who aren't taken up? I, I, I think actually it's one of those, um, it's, it's probably more one of those uh, graces that St. Thomas talks about, the graces freely given, which are actually for others. Mm. And this is the significance of St. Teresa of Avila, um, you know, talking about her embarrassment at this experience, is that um, uh, it, it actually uh, was a source of displeasure for her be, precisely because everyone could see her in that state. Mm. And, uh, and the humility of the saints um, you know, bristles at, at that sort of thing, right? They don't, they don't want to be seen to be holy. And um, so it really is a demonstration, a kind of visual aid, if you will, mm. the, that God makes of the saints. That goes back to what you were saying about St. Paul as spectacle, mm. right? It's, it's, uh, it's not, oh, marvelous, here I go again, <laughs> right? In the life of the saints, that's got to feel very uncomfortable. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, many of the many of the saints puzzle over these gifts, right? But they recognize that that um, they are being made a spectacle of in order to demonstrate the divine power, also the divine love, because that you know the very um, the, the the very act of elevation. I interestingly enough, uh, levity <laughs> up until the 19th century was was considered to be the opposite of gravity. Hmm an opposite power. So it was wow. a, people thought of it as, as a pull. Mm. And that's really what's happening. God is drawing them towards himself mm. and he's manifesting it before the eyes of the crowd. 
and in so doing sort of demonstrates that that's what he desires for everyone is that kind of levity, right? Wow. To be drawn up, to be lifted up, as Jesus says, you know, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And in a certain sense, that's a, this is a demonstration of that, that gospel principle. Mm. In the last minute, what would you, how would you, what's the lesson that you take away from uh, Well, um, St. Joseph of Cupertino is invoked by the seminarians I teach at the seminary at every exam <laughs> um, because he received infused knowledge um, at just the right time. So he, in his pre-ordination examination, he was asked the one question he knew the answer to, which he had been given apparently by infused knowledge. So uh, very simple. Um, and in the life of you know, an intellectual, somebody who's teaching theology, St. Joseph Cupertino, even though he's a levitator, mm -hmm. keeps us grounded, right? Yes. He, keeps, he reminds us that, uh, that, uh, that minority is the real root of sanctity, that um, you know, not taking yourself too seriously is the way in which we fly to God, not by you know, considering ourselves grave and important and holy. That is such a beautiful point for all of us to reflect on. I, I love the image of levity and the Lord wanting to take us up and, and Mary's Magnificat, God raises up the lowly. And the idea that, you know, uh, I like the angels fly because they don't take themselves <laughs> seriously. And, you know, the world could use more levity. Yes, it certainly could. The world, we all could use more levity. And uh, I, what, a, what a beautiful story that uh, St. Joseph of Cupertino gives us. What a great saint to pray to. You know, he kind of gets neglected. He, mm -hmm. he was humble and, and you know, uh, I think underestimated during his lifetime by many people. And uh, even today, even in the life of the church, God has raised him up high. So what a great friend for all of us to pray to and ask him to intercede to help us not take ourselves so seriously, to be light of heart and joyful of heart, right? That's what God wants for all of us. Mm -hmm. Well. Thanks, Sean, so much for being with us. And thanks to everybody who supports us in the mission circle. Those little gifts, all those little things make a big difference. And so everybody who's in our mission circle, you, you allow us to have this ministry. We're grateful for you. We pray for you every day. And we hope that the Lord may bless and keep you. Thanks for joining us. Take care. You can watch these interviews in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustan Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, ebooks, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.